electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Fresh signs that the economy is slowing, regardless of the stock market rally we're seeing today. And hedge fund manager Kyle Bass says things are about to slow down a whole lot more from here. We'll talk about what he's seeing ahead for the U.S. economy, what it means for our capacity to fund global allies in their war efforts, and his thoughts on Japan, gold, the dollar, and the markets right now. And one bright spot is shares of XPO Logistics today soaring on the back of earnings. Rival Yellow folding helped offset macro headwinds. But can they keep up the gains from here? The CEO joins us live ahead to answer that question. And from freight to fright, is the consumer beginning to look scary or not? We'll ask the CEO of Spirit Halloween what trends he's seeing this year and just how they decide which cities and malls to do business in. It's a strict set of criteria. Before all that, let's start with the markets. Dom Chu here to run through those numbers. A little bit of fright in the market being counteracted today with a little bit of optimism about what's happening with levels that we're seeing with the S&P 500. Now, if you look at the way the markets are shaping up, we are maybe tilting arguably towards the lower end of the trading range so far today. The S&P 500 currently sits at 41.41, up about 25 points. At the highs of the session, we were up roughly 46 points, up about 15 at the lows of the session. So that gives you an idea of the trading range. We're still up north of one half of 1% there. And by the way, a level to watch is 42.41 on the S&P 500, just about 100 points higher. That still represents that 200-day average trend line in the S&P 500 on a moving basis. The Dow Industrial is up about 1%, 335 points, 32,753. And the Nasdaq Composite, one half of 1% gain, the laggard, if you will, 12,706 for the Nasdaq Composite Index. Now, with regard to one of the lagging sectors so far today, it's healthcare. Some earnings-related kind of blow-off and ripple effects here still there. Align Technology, a weaker-than-expected report from last week. We also got Revity shares down 15%. They lowered their forecast. But take a look at Biotechni, also down 6%. It reports later on this week. The healthcare sector overall is up about two-tenths of 1%, but still, in a broader rally, it is the laggard so far today. And then, if you want to take a look at the stock in particular, check out what's happening with Dow Component. Quick service restaurant giant McDonald's, which is up one and three quarters percent. It's been a rough year so far for McDonald's, as you can see here, down about one percent, especially in just the last couple of months or so. But a better than expected report, better than expected sales growth at established restaurant locations here in the U.S. and other places as well, helping to power some gains there. So, again, menu price increases helping to buoy some of the profits over there. Kelly, we'll see if that's a consumer theme that develops more broadly, I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, for now, it's kind of a headwind about sentiment. But, Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. And we're just about 48 hours away from the Fed's next decision on interest rates. It could mark the first time since early 2022 that the central bank goes consecutive meetings without a hike. And the latest NABE survey offers some details maybe as to why. Let's bring in Steve Leisman with those results. Steve? Hey, Kelly, this is an important meeting this week, maybe for what the Fed is not going to do or is not likely to do, which is to hike rates. It would mark the first consecutive two-meeting hold since early 2022, with the Fed banking on a forecast for an economic slowdown that brings down inflation. Despite the strong growth we've had and still elevated inflation, keeping the the Fed on hold is the outlook for the following. Slower growth and lower inflation brought on in part by monetary policy lags from the 500 basis points of rate hikes. Higher bond yields are keeping the Fed at bay as well as a forecast for reduced hiring and lower wage gains. NABE, the National Association for Business Economics, reports in its industry survey that a net of just 27% of respondents are raising prices now. That's down from 45% in the prior survey, the lowest level we've seen since January 2021. For the first time in three years, more respondents report falling employment than rising. And Goldman Sachs out with a report this morning that sees inflation falling next year by a full percentage point. 
All of this has the market convinced the Fed ain't going anywhere anytime soon. 0% probability for a hike this week in the futures market, 24% by December, and a still low 33% by January. Rate cuts seen as more likely than not by July of 2024. All this, of course, presumes the data cooperate. Markets will digest the ISM this week, ADP data, and end up with an October jobs report expected to be weaker than September, but still pretty strong at 175,000 and 3.8% unemployment. Uh, Kelly, also, we have some Treasury data to digest this week, and it may be more that Janet Yellen and the Treasury are driving the bus more than Jay Powell and the Fed. Oh, don't I totally vehemently agree. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. Steve, for now, thank you very much, our Steve Leisman. Let's get sure. to my next guest who says, despite the stronger than expected GDP numbers last week, a lot more internal data are pointing to a slowdown here in the U.S. economy. Joining with more on the markets, geopolitical risk, uh, we'll, we'll just cover it all. Uh, is hedge fund manager Kyle Bass. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Heyman Capital Management. Kyle, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Good to see you too, Kelly. Thanks. So I guess we should take a step back and say um, most significantly for what you think investment wise, we're capping off a month that, you know, gold's been up and oil's kind of uh, elevated, um, things like that. What, what does this all come down to? If you're bearish, where do you think we're going and what does that mean for kind of how people should be invested right now? I mean, it's important just to just to I guess separate what's real and and, uh, and what's nominal and, and the difference is whatever inflation that's been reported, if you just look at look at a few things, uh, like the average cost of a soda in the U.S. is up 45% in the last three years. Um, the U.S. FHFA's own housing price index is up 45% in the last three years. We printed, we expanded our balance sheets at the Fed. We created 40% more broad money in the U.S. and exported that not only to U.S. consumers, but to the rest of the world. So I think we've had about 40% inflation in the last two or two and a half, three years. So when we think about what was real and what was, uh, again, what was nominal, those are two different things. And and uh, that kind of inflation, as you just saw in the prior report talking about McDonald's, uh, you know, moving up because they're able to move price. Yeah. The, the fact that wages haven't moved with the price level is something that we're going to be battling now, where we're going to see wages continuing to move higher, as we see in the auto worker strike and the UPS strike and, and the others, uh, versus uh, uh, trying to catch up to where the price level is. So I, so I think that's that's the real problem the administration has and the Fed has right now. And that certainly spells profit margin squeeze for earnings. So if I if I <laughs> if I said which would you rather stocks or bonds right now, you can only pick one. Um, would you? I mean, wh- which one is it? Well, I mean, if it's right now and not for the next ten years, I'd I'd surely pick bonds. I mean, you know, the, if you look at the U.S. curve. Whether you're on the front end or the back end of the curve, you're all right around five percent plus or minus twenty basis points. And you know, look, if you move the price level forty-five percent in a, in a couple of years, can you get a print that's a year-over-year print that's down? Of course you can. If you moved it from let's say let's say it was at a hundred pre-pandemic and now it's at one forty-five, just generically as a price level, could you get a one forty-three print? I sure hope so. Uh, and that's when the Fed and the team will victory lap and say, oh, we got inflation under control. But the new price level is still 143 and we're going to move higher now. We're going to look for 2 percent inflation. Right? That's the that is the that's the insidious nature of inflation and the Fed and the Treasury. So, you know, this year we're going to run a seven and a half percent of GDP deficit. Mm-hmm. Another way of saying we have six trillion of expenditures and we only make we're only going to bring in four trillion. I mean, our politicians have lost their mind. No, but we've that's never we've never run a deficit like that. It, that's a non-wartime deficit of full employment. So you're just, absolutely right. We've never run a deficit outside of an, of an emergency that is that large, and there's no real prospect for bringing it down. That's what makes this question about bonds so interesting. I didn't specify if I, if you'd buy treasuries versus corporates or something like that, but there are still plenty of people who think the the downturn will trump the deficit. That, in other words, as bad as the projections look, that the the bigger force is really going to be the slowing economy. That's the argument for buying treasuries. Obviously, the argument for selling them is that, you know, the the fiscal problems will be worse. Yeah, no. I mean, we're the tallest midget in the world in the U.S. And so I whether that's politically correct or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but I do think that it's worth uh, noting that if we turn down, uh, you know, getting getting five percent on a 10 year, well, I guess 480 or 490 where it is now or 5 percent uh, close to it on a 30 year might be interesting here. If, in fact, you know, the world's 
I think it's important to look at the world kind of writ large. And like I said, we we created 40% inflation in dollars. Global cross-border settlements are overwhelming majority of the majority of them is in dollars. Mm -hmm. And so there, every other country in the world has some convexity, call it negative movement to our push. So whether we, let's say we had 40% inflation, someone in another emerging market country is just going to be some level worse than that. And then when you, you start to study the Middle East and you look at non-oil producing countries in the Middle East, they've all hyperinflated their currencies away. So we now have this scenario where the world's kind of a tinderbox because the financial architecture is broken in the areas where there are large, large pockets of youth unemployment and disillusioned youth. And I think you're going to see more of the social fabric of the world torn. And therefore, buying bonds is a, is a better, better thing from now, a, a better idea uh, than stocks for now. Again, not for the long run. Sure. Uh, stocks, stocks will always outperform bonds, in my, in my opinion, in the long run. Let me ask you one more wonky question and then kind of one big picture one. The wonky one is about Japan. I don't know how closely you follow things there. Obviously, they're raising the cap once again, and there is a, a sense that that feeds into higher global bond yields um, and to watch the yen as it's been at some of these important levels to the dollar. Um, is there anything you'd say there about the significance of these moves or the implications of them? Sure. Uh, look, the, Japan is just uh, further along the way of this kind of uh, Keynesian dystopia that, that we sit in today. And um, you look at, at what they're doing and, you know, their their policy rate is still about negative 10 basis points and they move their 10 year cap uh, higher. So their 10 year in 2019 was just 10 basis points. Uh, sorry, their 30 year. Uh, and, and now it's all the way up to, I think, one point eight percent or something like that. Uh, I, sorry, there's a 10-year JGB. But uh, the point being is Japan's trying to normalize the front end. Mm -hmm. We just pushed 40% inflation of the world, and Japan has a negative 10 basis points policy rate. They are dying on the vine over there. And, and the yen has gone from, call it 110 to 150, and it's kind of at a soft cap at 150 with the BOJ intervening. I think Japan's between a rock and a hard place. They're in a really, really difficult spot. And I think playing with the front end is like... Uh, driving a truck full of nitroglycerin, you know, down a bumpy road. I think it's very, very dangerous what they're doing. As a lot of people ponder whether yield curve control is something the Fed will turn to here. But that's not going to be the, the last question I want to answer, uh, ask you because of all the significance of what's happened globally. Like President Biden said, we're at an inflection point with at least two, maybe three different major conflicts developing. And just what are your thoughts about the new speaker, the prospect for kind of the U.S. support of those conflicts and coming at a time when it looks like our economy probably will be slowing and into an election year? You know, I don't know. I've never met the new speaker. I don't have a great opinion one way or the other. But uh, on whether the U.S. should be supporting these things, um, I think it's an existential crisis between democracy and, and, and crazy autocrats. And I think, it, you know, again, a walk through the cemetery, the American cemetery in Normandy will remind you uh, what one crazy man can do to this world. And, and unfortunately, we've got a handful of them now, mostly with Putin and Xi Jinping and, and uh, Lesser uh, behind them, uh, just in terms of impact. Uh, so I think that the world sits today at what I call a hinge in history. The last 20 years were driven by economics. The next 20 years will be driven by geopolitics. And how we respond to those uh, conflicts is vital to both ourselves and the developed West, democracy and our allies. Um, I think, again, what have we spent on Ukraine? Maybe 110 billion, uh, I think around 65 billion this year. And most of that is going to our defense industrial sector hmm. uh, to build the energetics that we need to build. We have a $6 trillion federal budget. Again, I'm not saying 100 billion is a drop in the bucket, but as a percentage of our expenditures, it's almost nothing um, to help Ukraine fight off uh, the madman Putin, to help uh, you know, Israel uh, defeat the, the terrorist forces of Hamas and probably soon to Taiwan to help uh, fight the madman Xi Jinping himself. Well, I'd like to see maybe you and Speaker Johnson uh, a, a debate going. How, how's that? Could be an interesting one for the future of Republican policy and, and, and uh, policy. Yep. Last word. Yeah. All right, unless you want to leave it there. If you want to leave it there, too, I, that's fine. Oh, oh, sorry. No, I mean, I, I, you know, look, I... I think those that study history understand how big this crisis is. For those that say we should stop funding, uh, I don't think they understand what's at risk here and what's at stake here. 
uh, in the world. And again, uh, if you do a quick round trip around the world, uh, for those people that think the dollar is going to lose its hegemonic position or its primacy in this world, right. yeah, it'll come down as the world grows. But uh, you know, you look to Europe where you have the EU 27 and, and, and uh, they still don't have a central taxing authority uh, or a unified fighting force, but they are mostly all of our friends. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at NATO and you look at what, uh, what Erdogan said this, this weekend. I mean, he's showing his true colors. Um, uh, where else are you going to put your money? You're going to put your money in the BRICS run by China, Russia, and a group of, you know, the rogues gallery of countries and currencies. No one's going to put real money there. So I think we have to steer the world and I think we have to defend democracy uh, and freedom and everything we fought for until now, which means funding uh, all of these conflicts, unfortunately. No, I think that that's well said at a time when, as you mentioned, it's it's not quite as popular as it once was. Kyle, thanks for joining us. And buy stocks for the long run. I love that as a coda to all the concerns that we're discussing. I totally take your point. Kyle, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. Kyle Bass with Heyman Capital. On that note, let's take a closer look now at the impact that the economy, the Fed, even these geopolitical events are having on the energy space, because that big combination is a major threat to the continued availability of affordable energy. Brian Sullivan has been following that story for us. What Can we think, start Brad? this with a quiz, Kelly? Oh, like, bring it on. All right. So Indian Point <laughs> nuclear plant, upstate New York, taken offline a couple of years ago. How many natural gas, wind turbines offshore and solar panels? Would, it's not the beginning of a joke. Would it take to replace one Indian Point? Any clue? How many kind of big, big producing plants? Yeah, the giant by... offshore wind turbines that Pippa was showing our audience offshore. Can you? A hundred? Two hundred and forty. Wow. Five million solar panels and three natural gas point wow. plants to replace one large nuclear. This is not some promotion for nuclear. And was nuclear that was that plant taken offline because of issues or just yeah, it's old. it was old. Yeah, okay. ran for 60 years. By the way, broke a lot of records about continuous operation. Huh. And this is not some pro nuclear piece. What we're talking about here is what Steve Leisman opened your show with, which is interest rates, because what the audience needs to understand is we can take off certain amounts of power. That's fine. Like Indian Point, coal, get rid of it, right? Clean the air up. But you need to replace the power with something. Over the last 40 years, demand for power, electricity, in the United States, Kelly, has doubled. It's doubled from 1980 to now. And with data centers and AI, what do we think is going to happen? So since the Fed began raising rates, a lot of promise about new energy, right? Solar, wind, batteries. Since the Fed began raising rates on March 17th, 2022, SolarEdge down 75%, Sunrun, Siemens Energy, wow. which needs a bailout in Germany, Orsted, the biggest offshore wind, down 61%, oil and gas is up. The point is this. Here's the real worry. If we're taking off power, will the Federal Reserve and higher rates crush the new energy revolution? I mean, that, that's a huge question. And it, to what extent are this, is the state willing to step in and continue to subsidize it? Because in the low cost of capital era, exactly, they were uh, often eager and willing to do so. I even look at the election results across Europe and look at the Greens and some of the results that they've had relative to other parties. And you wonder if voters are saying and realizing these, it's not that these aren't important priorities, but that we can't afford to just subsidize uh, going yeah. a direction that undermines our ability to just have a, a reasonable standard of living. Well, you might know a guy that's been in Europe a couple of times the last few years talking about this. And, you know, listen, Germany's in dire, dire straits, and, and they've been saved, ironically, by mild weather. They had kind of a cooler industrial summer, that, not the south of Europe, but, but in the industrial parts of Europe, and a fairly mild winter. They've got enough gas to last this year. Back to the United States, though, my point is this. You said the states. Okay, so New Jersey recently gave Orsted $2 billion in tax credits that were supposed to go to consumers. New York State just said we're not going to pass rate increases on two big offshore wind plants called Sunrise uh, and uh, uh, what's the other one called? There we go. Beacon. And those are about 1.6 million homes. So if you're taking because they don't want to pass that cost on to consumers, Rhode Island in these fights as well, Massachusetts with Vineyard Wind. It's not a knock on wind power or solar, whatever. But the point is this to anybody out there listening or watching, hopefully some politicians, if you are going to take power offline, if you're going to shut down coal, shut down natural gas, shut down nuclear. You better have something to replace it with. And the idea is we're going to replace it with these offshore wind farms. Fine. 1.6 million homes for Indian Point, 1.6 million in new offshore wind. But now that may not get built because of higher interest rates 
continued labor and materials inflation, and the reluctance to pass along extremely higher costs to a consumer. So if we have a really cold winter this year or a really hot summer next year, and we don't have the power to make it up because we've been warned by these grid operators, Kelly, that it is possible we're going to have power shortages. Mm. Somebody's got to build new power plants. Right. I don't care if they're hamsters on a wheel, windmills, solar, Mars, whatever. Cole, you look at the way that people have jumped up to kind of restart some of those plants, again, across Europe or even here, and that tells you the desperation level that we could see. Indian Point was replaced by three natural gas plants, significantly increasing the use of fossil fuels in New York State. I don't think that was the goal. Absolutely. Brian, thank you thank for you. bringing that to us. We'll see you later, our Brian Sullivan. Let's get to Apple now, the tech giant gearing up for its scary fast event tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's expected to unveil a new lineup of Macs, plus its next generation silicon chip, the M3. Apple shares are up into that keynote presentation. They're obviously coming off a tough stretch. But the unusual timing of the event has caught the eye of investors and analysts alike, including our next guest, who says the scheduling is very odd ahead of their Q4 results. Joining us is Needham Senior your analyst, Laura Martin. Good to see you again, Laura. Welcome. A, a primetime tech show. I'm not sure I've seen one of these before. I'm very scared. I mean, this is Halloween a day early. I'm very scared about this event, Kelly. <laughs> so what do you think it's all about? Would, have they hurried it out? Are they trying to do something? Who, who, what is this really all about? Well, I think, good question. They just announced with Nike a big uh, sustainability push. And, and so maybe part of it is that. But also, I think they really need a refresh on the on the um, Mac. And so we're hoping they get a laptop with their new silicon MP3 silicon chip. And so I think they're just trying to tie it in with Halloween because it's the day before Halloween. So they decided to do it eight at night, your time, and keep you guys all up late, working late overnight. <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest implication for investors? Do you think they can, despite all of the concern at Ajita, do you think they can come out and dazzle folks and kind of reignite uh, the next move up in the shares? Yeah, I think I think we're a little above the street on um, these laptop, the Mac Pro, MacBook Pro laptops. And I think that probably they're going to have a weak quarter on that. That's my read of why they're doing it today, three days before they do earnings, is they're going to have a very weak sort of um, tablet sales. And in order to allay that, they're front running that by this dazzling new show about what's going to come out. And so people sort of overlook a weak number from the, app, the, the, the laptop number when they report on Thursday. That's my read on the weird timing here. All right. Anything else you'd say? I want to ask you about Disney, but what, what else are you going to be listening for for, the, uh, for this evening's event, for Apple and even for or as we start to turn our attention towards earnings? Yeah, I'm really listening. I'm really listening for anything that has to do with China demand. You know, we're seeing channel checks saying that um, Chinese demand for the iPhone 15 is down 6% year over year. And as you know, the government in China sort of getting even with America for trying to you're threatening to kick out TikTok is saying Apple devices cannot be used in government buildings. So that geopolitical tension could really that China's 20 percent of Apple's unit sales. So anything having to do with China and the weakness in China, I'll be really listening carefully for. All right. And that kind of looms over whatever uh, we may hear this evening on Disney. Laura, uh, we do have this report that Ike Perlmutter is backing Nelson Peltz in his campaign there. Uh, what do you make of that? So no surprise, right, because he backed him last time, too, and they both are sort of almost, I'm going to call it enemies of Bob Iger, so I think it's a little personal here. But in fairness, I think Bob Iger, by committing $60 billion to theme parks, has completely sidestepped the issue about what about the core content business? And it's not growing, but he's not cutting costs. So I actually, shares are up today of Disney over 1%. I think that's deserved. I think these activists do the world, do shareholders a service by forcing CEOs to focus on the net, a trade, you know, an investor timeframe, which is a year. What are they going to do to either cut costs or prove that they can grow this company faster in the core media business? And what would those moves look like? I mean, obviously he could, would you rather see him kind of aggressively cutting costs and at least kind of bringing that into proportion? Or would you rather see some splashy moves on the content front that kind of make people feel better about the investment spend? The issue with the, the issue with the revenue line is it's out of his control. We've got strikes. He just pushed off two big movies for a whole year because he thinks he can't market without actors, pr pr you know, like um, promoting them. So they're pushing off the content, which is going to hurt their revenue.
in the near term. So no, he can't really, I mean, it's harder for him to affect the revenue line with cord cutting and with the strikes having to do with movie releases. So he's got to cut costs. It, that's like the only thing that Bob Iger can control over here at Disney. And I think this bid by Nelson Peltz, uh, along with Perlmutter, is going to force him to do that, which I think is great for shareholders. Again, may send a chill down the company spine, maybe the only way to boost the stock price uh, at this point. Laura, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Good to see you again. Nice to see you, Kelly. Laura Martin with Needham. Coming up, one stock that's jumping today, XPO surging 14% after a big earnings beat. The CEO joins us fresh off the call with how they're navigating this very difficult freight environment. Plus, a special commercial real estate edition of Earnings Exchange. We heard from Empire State Realty CEO last week after their positive results. What about the rest of the space? Morgan Stanley's head of CRE will join us next with what to expect. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets as the Dow is taking a leg higher, up 435 points or 1.3 percent. The outperformer, look at the gap between the blue uh, chip, the big caps in the Dow and the Russell 2000 small caps, only up a tenth of a percent today. The S&P, the Nasdaq right in the middle. The 10 year still at 490. We're back after this. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of the trucking firm XPO are on track for their best day since April after an earnings beat on the top and on the bottom line. Uh, the company's less than truckload or LTL business seeing a boost from the bankruptcy of rival trucking firm Yellow, which had accounted for about 10 percent of that market. XPO is up 150 percent since spinning off its RXO brokerage unit about a year ago. What is the state of freight now for the fourth quarter and beyond? Joining us now are in-house freight expert Frank Holland, along with XPO CEO Mario Herrick. Welcome to both of you. First of all, I really appreciate you guys being here. Um, and it's a lot of important things happening today. Your earnings, a nice stock move. It's, you said, Frank, the one-year anniversary of him taking over. Um, how are you able to execute during this extremely challenging freight environment? Is it just market share gains from the struggles of some competitors? Well, Kelly, we had a great quarter in the third quarter, and the team executed really well. So we've been improving our efficiency over time. So we were able to handle more freight for our customers, more shipments, higher prices, and importantly, record service quality. And we're excited about that for our customers as well. Mm -hmm. So, Mario, uh, Kelly just referenced it. A year ago, I talked to you and you took over as CEO of this company, became a pure play LTL company. I want to dig into some of the numbers. We're showing them to the audience right now. Pricing up 6.4%, tonnage up over 3%. We call it volume here just to simplify for the audience. <laughs> what was the catalyst for those gains? Well, starting first with pricing, uh, the big catalyst for these gains has been our improving service product. We exited the third quarter with a company record and service quality for our customers. And when we invest in service, our customers are willing to pay a premium for that. And we've seen an acceleration in price associated with it. On the volume side, a lot of that went through the yellow as a bankruptcy or seizing operations in the third quarter, where we saw they were 10% of the industry capacity and all that freight had to go somewhere. And we were able to take on more of that freight for our customers. So you were able to benefit from the closure yellow. We're going to talk about your customers for a minute. You have some blue chip customers, Ford, Dow, General Electric, a number of customers. Were you able to gain other customers? What kind of customers did you gain? Yeah, so we gained thousands of customers through the course of the year. And a lot of these were driven by these service improvements I, I just mentioned. Now, a lot of them were smaller customers. A lot of them were mom and pop shops. Uh, we call them local accounts in our business uh, that we were able to onboard thousands of new customers through the course of the year and grow volume with that segment of business. So you talk about these mom and pop shops. Uh, is that a higher margin business? Because today you actually made an announcement that kind of flew under the radar. It's part of why the stock's up. 
You believe by 2027, you're going to improve margin by 6%. You call it operating ratio. It's an efficiency metric. Lower is better in this case. Yeah. And you believe you have 6% of improvement in the next couple of years. How are you going to make that happen? Well, Frank, first, we say at least 6% because our goal is to actually get to a higher number. And we want to get our operating ratio in the 70s over time. Now, we're going to make that happen predominantly through three main levers. One is around continuing to improve our pricing or yield over time driven by service improvements. The second one is making sure that we lean into higher margin business and local account business that we're going to be growing. And the third area is around cost efficiency. Mm -hmm. You look here in the third quarter, we increase our shipment by 8% on a year-on-year basis, yet our, our labor, our headcount was roughly flat on a year-on-year basis. And all of that is proprietary technology improving our efficiency as we go along. It's fascinating to look at the performance of RxO versus XPO since the spinoff. I mean, RxO has been basically flat and you guys are up 150% over the past year. And I'm not sure that's what people would have expected at the time because RxO is supposed to be kind of like the, the tech, whatever you want to call it, piece of this. But can you talk about macro conditions? I mean, what is happening with the economy right now? By the way, RxO is a fantastic company, but a lot of it is the cycle. They, mm-hmm. they, they are in different cycle with exactly. the technology industry. But from a macro perspective, we usually survey our customers on a, on a regular basis, on a quarterly basis. And what we are hearing is that things are soft but they are not improving drastically, but not getting worse either. I mean, one of the indices we watch for is the ISM manufacturing index, and it improved from the third quarter. In September, it was roughly 49, and usually it's still deflationary, but getting better. So one other question I want to ask you, some news today. Uh, There's a a private trucking company called Jack Cooker. I personally haven't heard of them. Maybe you have. They're making a bid to buy Yellow's assets. As we mentioned, Yellow was about 10% of the market. That's now been offline. If someone's able to acquire those assets, does that put pressure on your business? Well, we'll see what that process leads to. Uh, Overall, these assets will take time to get back into LTL, and we believe only a portion of these assets will get back into the LTL industry. But also, it will be in the hands of uh, carriers that price at a higher level. So we we will see a a dynamic of a rising tide when it comes to pricing associated with that. But we'll see what what sale process of assets get to. That will be interesting to watch for sure. Well, thank you both so much. We really appreciate it. Our Frank Holland, along with XPO CEO Mario Harak, thanks for coming in today. And happy one-year anniversary. Thank you. Let's get to some breaking news from the Sam Bankman free trial. Kate Rooney live outside the courthouse in Manhattan. Kate? Hey, Kelly, so we're in a lunch break right now. The government side is getting a chance to cross-examine Sam Bankman-Fried. He's more rehearsed today, a lot less stalling than what we saw with this sort of sub-hearing last week. He's been giving brief answers. We're hearing a lot of yep, things like I don't recall, trying to say he doesn't remember some of these issues here. The government attorneys are presenting him with a lot of his old tweets. We're hearing about old media interviews, transcripts from those, congressional testimony he testified in the Senate under oath. And the jury's also seen a lot of emails as well. They're attempting to show inconsistencies in times where he was saying one thing behind closed doors and then painting a completely different picture publicly. They spent a lot of time today talking about his hedge fund Alameda, playing by pretty different rules than other customers on the FTX exchange. The fact that they were front-running trades, they were able to have a negative account balance, and then a $65 billion line of credit. Meanwhile, none of this was disclosed. He was saying quite the opposite publicly. There was also Pretty cringeworthy moment, Kelly. He was asked directly about his private messages with a journalist where he called regulators, I'm going to paraphrase this, dumb mother effers admitted that he said that. And then they had him read the part of the messages where he said F regulators while he was trying to get some regulation passed. The defense wrapped up this morning. They, meanwhile, tried to show that he did not have criminal intent. They tried to shift the blame to some of the other executives. They say that he didn't know that his exchange had an eight billion dollar hole, but we're getting some interesting moments inside the courtroom here. Kelly, back to you. And haven't we already had so many of them? Kate, for now, thank you very much. Our Kate Rooney reporting in Manhattan. Let's get a quick check on markets as they continue to move higher to session highs nearly with the Dow at 482. The high was 519. And again, it is the outperformer with a one and a half percent gain. The S&P up one percent. The Nasdaq just shy of that. Over to Tyler Matheson for our CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Israel's military says it has free a hostage. The IDF reports that the soldier was released overnight during a ground operation and has been medically checked, is doing well, and has been reunited with her family. 
The private was taken hostage by Hamas during the October 7 attack. A senior defense official said that U.S. targets in Iraq and Syria have been attacked at least 23 times in the last two weeks. At least four of the attacks happened after the U.S. launched retaliatory strikes on Iranian-linked targets in Syria last week. U.S. military is buying Japanese seafood in bulk to offset the impact of China's ban on the food. That's according to a Reuters report. China issued a ban after Tokyo started releasing treated water from its Fukushima nuclear plant into the sea. The first U.S. purchase included about a metric ton of scallops. These purchases will feed soldiers and will be sold in shops and restaurants on U.S. bases. Back to you, Kelly. All right, Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. Coming up, Vornado and Simon Property Group are on deck with results after the bell. We have the numbers and the narratives to know ahead of those prints next in earnings exchange. Don't go anywhere. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back, everybody. Take a quick look there at the impact higher rates are having on the real estate sector. Real estate, the white line down 14 percent in the past three months, while yields have jumped about a full point. And with just two days until the Fed decision and amid lingering concerns about commercial real estate, let's dig into two of the big names reporting after the bell today. Morgan Stanley's REIT analyst Ronald Camden joins us now with the action, the story and the trades on Vornado and Simon property. Ron, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Great to be here. Let's start with Vornado, one of New York City's biggest landlords, nearly 20 million square feet of office space. It shares are down 17 percent over the past few months. And you note that expirations at 1290 Avenue of the Americas will be a key driver for their occupancy outlook. Vornado also has no unsecured debt maturing until 2025. They could improve their capital structure with a potential sale or mortgage against the Farley building in Midtown, you say. Uh, what would you do with the stock here? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so what we've learned so far during the office earnings season is that, number one, the return to office has stalled um, about 50 to 60 percent. So you're not seeing any more pickup from there. And number two, tenants are still being very deliberate. They're still taking their time before committing to, for space. So I think the first thing we're going to be looking at is leasing activity. And as you sort of mentioned, uh, 1290 Avenue of the Americas is a big one because they have a large expiration there. If they're not able to sort of get new announcements, new tenants signed there, that's going to be a negative look, uh, negative outlook for the market. Yeah. The other two properties that are important for them is Pen One and Pen Two, which are the redevelopment assets. They'd gotten some traction on Pen One, but Pen Two had been pretty quiet. So we'd certainly be looking at an update there as well. So you have an underweight and a $12 price target on a stock that, as we've pointed out before, has had a really tough decade, basically. What, if anything, turns it around? Yeah, we've been concerned about the refinancing risk uh, in the office space, as well as Vornado specifically. We think investors need to see more progress on delevering. And that could come in different ways, right? That could come with asset sales to, 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 to reduce leverage, uh, which is, is, is tough in this environment, given how rates have moved. And, you know, I think the other way it could, it could come about is if the company is able to grow out of it, Again, which becomes a very tough prospect if people are not really coming back to the office. Uh, we're going to be watching Farley really closely. Uh, they've talked about being able to add a mortgage or maybe even sell a piece of that asset to reduce leverage. That could certainly get us more positive if we start to see some traction there. Incredible to look how it was a $75 stock for most of last decade. Uh, and yet here we are at 20. So not one of your favorite names. The next company is, though, it's Simon Property Group. They also report after the bill, uh, faring better than Vornado, only down about 7% the past couple months. Street wants to hear about further investment in retailers. Any updates? I didn't realize they had a stake in Shein, the Chinese retailer. That's interesting. A uh, mall occupancy rates also in focus after after management last quarter said they expected to top 95% and are still hoping to capture more luxury consumers with in-person experiences. Has the stock been a disappointment to you? Is it a definite buy here? Yeah, we think so. So this is one of the more interesting value opportunities in the in the entire REIT space. It's trading at about nine times earnings. And we are very cash flow focused. And if you think about Simon Properties Group's business, if they can generate $4 billion of free cash flow every year, 
that's well able to cover the dividend at about $2.6 billion and leave a, a plenty amount of capital to reinvest in the business. So the reason we think it's interesting is, I think you're absolutely right, the core business has actually been doing better than expected. So occupancy is getting back to 95% or higher. Uh, releasing spreads are picking up. The NOI, which they lost during the pandemic, they're going to have it all back by next year, which I think is very interesting. I think the reason the stock has sort of lagged this year is because there's been a lot of noise around their retailer investments. Hmm. Uh, so they've owned, you know, uh, JCPenney, Postel, a lot of different brands, including any Bauer. And the retailer in- investments have underperformed this year. It's only about, you know, five, six, seven percent of their earnings. But every quarter, it's looking like a miss, even though the core business is doing well. So we go into this quarter. Should they divest again, that? That's really interesting. We think actually that they've made a um, they've made more than their return on that on the, the equity that they put in. They've been able to get more out of it through through sort of equity payments and valuation. We do think over time they will look to monetize that and show the market that it's been a good deal. Um, so uh, you know, at this point, I don't think they need to divest it. I think they just need to continue messaging and being transparent that it's the retailer investments that are causing the volatility, whereas the core business. Right. I mean, it's still a Three percent plus growing business, trading at a nine times earnings with a, a great dividend that they just raised. That's well covered. All right. So the other four names that you really like right now: Well Tower and Healthcare. You like Prologis. You like Agree, the net lease rate. You like gaming and leisure properties in the casino space. I mean, it's kind of a grab bag. Yeah, it's you know, investing as REITs is very difficult, as you have used pointed out. The interest cost headwinds are impacting everyone, and then you have to make sure you find the REITs where the fundamental story is still interesting. But that's where senior housing really comes in. That's been one of our favorite themes I've talked about on here before. You've got an aging population that are moving into these uh, senior housing facilities, and this is one of the few spaces where you could see pricing power. Um, I think Prologis is you know, the industrial theme is all about e-commerce infrastructure, which is still real. I think you're actually coming at a very interesting moment as the market is concerned about slowing growth uh, in the economy as well as rents. So we actually think it presents a pretty interesting entry point for investors that have a long-term view here. All right, Ron, always good to pick your brain. Uh, We really appreciate it, especially at a, a high profile time for the space that you covered. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ron Camden of Morgan Stanley. And we'll talk to James Taylor, the CEO of Bricksmore. That's a REIT with more than 65 million square feet in retail space after they report tomorrow. That'll be right here on the exchange. You don't want to miss it. Meantime, General Motors, the last of the big three automakers to apparently reach an agreement with the UAW. And that was after the union expanded its strike at GM facilities over the weekend. Uh, Its shares, along with Stellantis, are fractionally higher. Stellantis announced a deal on Saturday. Ford's now down 1%. Phil LeBeau, we can't even get a one-day rally here. Is it? Is it really? Is this it? It's done? It's over? No more strikes? It appears to be over, Kelly. Uh, look, we, we expect to hear an, an announcement, a formal announcement from the UAW and from General Motors a little bit later on today. Uh, neither of them wanted to comment, declined to comment when we reached out to them. Uh, but we understand that they have reached an agreement. So what's next? The workers will be returning to jobs. The picket lines are gone. A gradual resumption of production. They just don't flip the switch and boom, they're all up to the production rates they had before. It's going to take some time. For the UAW, this strike has worked out better than I think most people would have expected. 25% raises over the next four and a half years, over 30% when you factor in cost of living adjustments. And when you take a look at shares of Stellantis, keep in mind that before this strike, many people said, well, look, Stellantis will never bring back the plant that is shut down outside of Rockford, Illinois, the Belvedere plant. Guess what? It's coming back as part of its agreement with the UAW. They're also adding a battery plant at that facility. And in terms of production, as you take a look at shares of GM and Ford, the production that has been lost during the strike, much of it will be made up by overtime. Now, that's going to take some time, Kelly. It's not like they can make that up real quick. It takes about a week of overtime to make up for a a day's worth of production. So it's going to take some time. And over time, they expect to make up what they lost in terms of vehicle production over the last six weeks for most vehicles, not all vehicles, but for most vehicles. And what about the larger issue of their transition to making electric vehicles? It was a little unclear how much of their kind of scrapped plans the past couple of weeks were because of the strike, both for Ford and GM, and how much just reflects the more difficult economics of that business going forward. 
I think it's it's both. And and right now they're saying it's because of the economics. But the economics are influenced by what's happening with the strike and the fact that their costs are going to be going up over the next couple of years. So where they have allocated a certain amount of money for 24, 25, and 26, in the case of Ford, they have said, look, we've got $12 billion we're investing in EVs. We're still going to invest in EVs, but as that market has it has slowed down, it's not growing as quickly, we're going to defer some of that. And we're going to be more judicious about what plants we invest in and whether or not we're doing the full commitment that we initially laid out a year or two ago. I think most on Wall Street look at that decision and what we will likely hear from Stellantis and GM regarding EV production. If they're more judicious, I think most on Wall Street will say, okay, we can live with that. Um, it doesn't mean that they're throwing in the towel. It just means that they're going to be a little smarter uh, in terms of how they're allocating their dollars. All right. Ford stock still single digits today. Uh, Phil, thanks very much for these updates. We appreciate it. Our Philip Bow. Sticking yeah. with auto exposure, take a look at OnSemi. It's one of the worst performers in the S&P today, despite being on the top and bottom lines. But shares are down almost 20 percent for their worst day since 2020 on lighter than expected Q4 guidance. On CEO telling Squawk on the street that the shrinking of auto inventory which they supply, is taking longer than expected as demand slows because of high interest rates. But he said the mega trend of growing EV demand is still intact and should be supportive of their future demand. Coming up, killer clowns, creepy crawlies, and commercial real estate. We'll talk to the CEO of Spirit Halloween about the process of starting, staffing, and selling at more than 1,500 pop-up locations across the country. That's next. And as we head to break, here's a scary stat. The Invesco Solar ETF, the TAN, is down 20% in October, on track to post its worst month since March 2020 and trading near its lowest levels since the summer of that year three years ago. Solar Edge, Sun Power, Enphase, all among the biggest laggards this month with declines of 35 to 42%. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Consumer spending was supposed to spook the street, but the carnage hasn't quite happened yet. In fact, the National Retail Federation projecting Halloween spend to crack $12 billion this year. That's an increase of more than half a billion from last year. About $4 billion of that goes to costumes alone, as my next guest knows well. Uh, joining me now is Stephen Silverstein. He is the CEO of Spencer's and Spirit Halloween Holdings. Stephen, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Glad you to were be just here. telling me the fast. You've been CEO there 20 years? May of 20. 20- Oh, three. That's probably one of the longest tenures, you know, I can think of. It has been a great journey. It's been so much fun building the Spirit brand. We, when I started with Spirit in 2003, we were a very small company, not well known. And as you mentioned, this year will be over 1,500 stores nationwide throughout the North America. Was that a blueprint from day one or did it just kind of one thing after another? Um, always been in love with the brand. It, Halloween has had a magical kind of of experience for people to come into the stores and, and come get engaged. And I, I was able to really tap into that from the very first time I, I laid eyes on Spirit. But mm-hmm. the truth of the matter was we didn't even know what it was. Yeah. The idea of a pop-up store that would become a national brand and chain was impossible to imagine. Right. And was there any, was it opportunistic after the financial crisis as well by some vacant real estate and things like that? I mean, because it it seems hard to build a business model on the fact that we know we'll have certain vacancies and opportunities every season, every year and and build like a loyal following around that. Well, what's not opportunistic and what's not temporary is Halloween. Mm -hmm. Halloween comes every year. So the idea was that was clear that the market was looking for something of this scale and scope. It just had never been done before. So when you talk about the real estate market, that's an interesting question. There's always vacancy in the real estate market, even in the, the best of times. Right. You know, now we see we talk about it as, of course, but the truth of the matter is there's always vacant real estate and we have to be flexible and we have to be able to be fast. And that's really the, the secret sauce. Yeah, you're like a permanent temporary chain. We are 24-7, 365 Halloween. I call us a hybrid retailer because we're physical two months a year, but we're virtual the other 10. Got it. So you're in the same locations in, in my little area. You're always in the same locations. How do you know they're not just going to lease one of those buildings one of these days? Well, they do. And certainly the landlords are looking for permanent tenants when they can get them. But about a third of the time, we are in the same location. What we think of is markets. So in your market, um, we look at multiple locations where we will reappear. So that's the way we think about how we manage our real estate. And we mentioned that you have a very specific way of picking those locations. What goes into that? Well, first and foremost, as a temporary retailer or a temporary space, we need visibility. 
it's the recognition. I was talking to Susan just before I came on, and she was telling me when she sees those signs go up, boy, she just gets happy. And that's really, <laughs> so I want her to be able to see those signs when she's driving down the street. So visibility is probably the key factor. Size, um, and then of course there's some other things we'll look at, but we've, always, we've taken all kinds of different uses. The other thing I noticed, and I, my main experience was, was going last year when I, I couldn't get there this year, but, but I look around and I notice the inventory seems very carefully curated and selected. You don't have everything. You seem to have a couple of main things, certain reappearing brands, types of costumes. Um, it almost reminded me a little bit of Costco, like a very deliberate choice about what you carry and what you don't. And I'm just curious, is it all vertically integrated? Like, how does that, that piece of the business work? It's, it's a great point. And the way we look at it is we are a specialty Halloween store. We do curate our assortment. The assortment is vast. I mean, there's hundreds of different styles, but we're very thoughtful about it. And it, as you mentioned, we have over the years become almost vertical. So we do all the sourcing, design, manufacturing as well, because this spirit has become such a phenomenon itself that there is no market that can keep up, keep up with it. When do you have to know what the hot movie or the hot costume is going to be? What if you get it wrong or there's something that comes late? Right. So we always have our antenna up. One of the things that, that you learn, and this is our 40th year for spirit. Not only have I been there wow. 20 years, but spirit has been around for 40. So you do a lot of listening. You do a lot of instinct and you do a lot of analysis. And you are here with a Barbie costume, I can see. Is that a Paw Patrol hat? This is a Paw Patrol hat. Okay, yes, what that a, is. And you have the entire costume. And then what's over there? The Adams Family? So this some is, classic. This is Wednesday, but for your pup. <laughs> <laughs> what's the fastest growing part of the business these days? Is um, it pet costumes? Or, or I'm just curious if it's like a specific type of Halloween costume or, or what would you kind of point out? I would point out really the growth of Halloween in general. I mean, over the past three years in particular, the growth has been phenomenal. It's been this sort of, uh, of escape from, from the, you know, sort of what's going on in the world. And so we've really experienced growth across the board. Costumes, accessory, decor. People are, are decorating their houses like they've never have done before I've, also. I notice you're not worried about Amazon, Timu, Shein, you know, online costume disruption. Of course we are. And, but, but the way we think about it is Halloween is very tactile. Uh, experience, right? And I think of it, the antidote to Amazon to me is the five senses retail. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you went into the store and you interacted with yes, all those yes. and your kids are running around and it becomes a social event. So I look at physical retail as shopping. Amazon, buy. Shop, go into the store, spend time, have an uh, experience with yeah. your family. Well, later we can talk about trunk or treat, which is this new concept <laughs> to me. I'm like, and no one even goes out on Halloween night in my neighborhood practically. Well, there's so many different ways to experience Halloween. Trunk yes. or treat, parade, yes. parties. It, it's like a week-long, almost a month-long affair. That's part of the growth. Next year we'll get better costumes. Stephen, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for coming in great today. Great to meet you. We Thank appreciate you, it. Sil Stephen Silverstein of Spirit Halloween. Speaking of retail, be sure to catch Sheehan's Donald Tang and Marcelo Cloret in an exclusive interview tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern time. That does it for the exclusive. Exchange. Next on Power Lunch, President Biden signing an executive order on AI. We'll have the details. Tyler's getting ready and I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.